Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 5th of December, Andrew Bunt taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Andrew gave us an overview of the major and minor prophet books of the Bible. Andrew is the assistant pastor at King's Church Hastings and a regular writer and teacher on various theology topics. Let's take a listen to the session. The prophets, you'll have noticed in your Bibles, are a big chunk of the Old Testament. And actually, in our English Bibles, the prophets take up almost as many pages as the entire New Testament. So they are a big, uh, substantial part of our Bible. And I think often they're some of the most neglected parts of the Bible by Christians. We might have a few favorite passages. There might be a few verses we might think of, maybe especially around this time of year, might quote in our carol services. But actually, a lot of the prophets is just very uh, unknown to us and quite intimidating. And I do get that there are some good reasons for that. The prophets are uh, hard for us to read sometimes, hard for us to understand. They're from a long time ago, from a very different world, from very specific situations, using language and imagery. It might seem a bit kind of foreign to us. They can be hard for us to understand. But what I want to try and convince you of this morning is that they are well worth learning to understand well. They're well worth the little bit of effort it takes to read them and to understand them well. The prophets are full of wonderful insights into who God is and what he's like, into how he works, into his promises, his faithfulness to his people and his plans in the good news of the gospel. And also the prophets help us to understand the New Testament better. Actually, the New Testament understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is hugely shaped by the prophets. The prophets kind of give a lot of the, I guess, the structure, the framework which the New Testament uses. So they're well worth engaging with. So in this first little session, we're going to talk about the prophets themselves and then the prophetic books that come from them. So first off, let's just think, who are the prophets? And here we use the word both in two ways. Prophets, we speak both of the people who brought these messages, but also of the books. And here we're thinking of the people particularly. We tend to distinguish between two types of prophets in the Old Testament. There are first what we call the speaking prophets. These are the, the characters we find in certain of the biblical books who act as prophets. Uh, so it's often people like uh, Samuel and Nathan and Elijah and Elisha. We read about them in the context of narrative stories of what they did as prophets. And then there will also be about the writing prophets, not because they didn't speak, but actually because they're the ones whose messages we have written as entire collections. They're people who would have acted much like those we read about in the narratives, but then whose words were written down and recorded for us. And so that's people like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Obadiah, all the kind of ones we find in that section of the prophets in our Old Testament. And the writing prophets appear a bit later in Israel's history, kind of around the 8th century. So uh, around the time that things are starting to go quite wrong. And as you've kind of traced the Old Testament story this year so far, you'll kind of be familiar with the kingdom dividing after Solomon. And basically things just getting pretty bad. The occasional good king but most of the kings leading the people astray, not worshipping God, not being faithful to the covenant. And it's into that kind of context that the writing prophets appear. 
But prophets have been present throughout Israel's history. Abraham, right back in Genesis, is referred to as a prophet. Moses is a key prophet and really one of the, the models of what a prophet really should be like. And then you get many through 1 Samuel, through 2 Kings and 1 or 2 Chronicles as well. What about then what were the prophets? Kind of what were they actually up to? What was their task? We often think of the prophets as people who foretold the future. They looked down the timeline and they told people what was coming. And that is a little bit of what they did, but actually is a very little bit. That's only a tiny part, really, of what they were usually doing. Prophets are best understood as God's mouthpieces or his messengers. They're the, the mouthpieces, the one who speaks God's word to his people or his messengers. They receive the word from God. They come as messengers and pass it on to the people. And actually, the best illustration of what a prophet is comes from the Old Testament itself and comes from the stories of Moses and Exodus. When Moses is called to go to Pharaoh to uh, ask Pharaoh to let God's people go, Moses feels very ill-equipped for this task. He's very conscious that he's not an eloquent speaker. He may have had a speech impediment, maybe. He doesn't feel confident to do that. And God says, okay, well, I'm going to give you Aaron, your brother, and he's going to be your mouthpiece. He's going to take the words from you, and you're going to speak them to Pharaoh. And God explicitly says to Moses, you will be to Aaron as God, and Aaron will be your prophet. So a prophet is one who takes the words of one and passes them on to another. And God illustrates that there with Moses and with Aaron. We also see this idea of the prophets as messengers in what we might call the messenger formula. You know, very often when you read the prophets, you get that little phrase, thus says the Lord, or this is what God says, sometimes at the start or at the end of, of a little passage. And that actually was used as a, as a messenger formula in the ancient world where a king would have a message for usually another king or another ruler, would speak it to a messenger, a person who would literally travel across to this other place, stand before this other king, and would say, thus says the king. And so when the prophet said, thus say the Lord, they're acting just like the messengers who went between kings and rulers in the ancient world. And there's actually an example of that in two kings, where you can see that happening between two, uh, two earthly kings. And so when we read the prophets, we are listening in on God's conversation to his people at that time. And so we're wanting to understand what was God saying and why. But then we want to ask also, why did the prophet speak? Kind of what was the, the purpose of God having these messengers, having these mouthpieces at this time? Well, the prophets, in a sense, are not particularly innovative. They don't say much that is new. Really, actually, they are reapplying and reaffirming old truths in a new context. And what the prophets are doing is they're harking back to the uh, covenant made at Sinai and the Moses in Exodus through to Deuteronomy. And they're reminding people of the covenant. They're calling people back to the covenant. They're warning them of the possibility of judgment that comes if they don't keep the covenant. And so really it's not they're bringing anything new, it's that they are reapplying, they're recalling in a new context what God was saying or what God had said. And because of this, much uh, of the Old Testament prophecy is what we might call conditional. So it's not that actually these things are said, God says this is going to happen, and no matter what, this is going to happen. A lot of prophecy is conditional. And you see that in a couple of places in Jeremiah, which we'll get to look at in a minute in, in a breakout room context. Because what God is doing is he's sending these words in the hope that people will take action and they'll change. He's often bringing warnings. He's warning them, you're not keeping up to the conditions of this covenant. You're not keeping the law that you've agreed to. And the covenant always said that if you keep God's law, you receive God's blessing, 
But actually, if you fail to keep God's law, it won't be blessing you'll receive. Actually, it'll be curses you receive. And the prophets are saying all these curses, effectively, all these punishments are coming because you're failing to live up to God's word. But often what they're saying is they're not saying this is going to happen no matter what. They're saying this is what's coming. So you need to change your actions to stop it happening. It's warning speech. It's a bit like if we were in a kitchen together and I saw you reaching out your hand to touch the hob, which you didn't realize was still hot. I might shout, you'll burn yourself. And actually, if you change your action, you won't burn yourself. But what I said hasn't become untrue. It was a conditional statement because it was warning speech. It was designed to make you do something to change your actions. In the same way, if you see someone walking across the street, you might shout, you're going to be hit by a bus. And actually, your hope is not that's going to happen no matter what. Your hope is they'll think, I need to change my action to avoid this happening. And so in the same way, a lot of Old Testament prophecy is conditional because it's about this covenant. It's calling people, saying you're breaking the covenant. You're going to receive judgment, but actually you can repent. You can turn away. Having said all of that, there are places where Old Testament prophecy is unconditional. It is God saying this is going to happen basically no matter what. Sometimes that is about judgment. There kind of comes a point where the people have rebelled against God so consistently for so long that God just says, actually, now is the time when I'm going to have to act decisively. Sometimes there are unconditional statements about that. Sometimes the unconditional statements actually are the promises of what God's going to do. When he makes promises of the good that he's going to bring, of salvation, of rescue, of restoration after judgment, they're unconditional promises. And often we can see that because they're not rooted in the people's behavior, what they do. It's not kind of, if you do this, then I'll be good to you and I'll rescue you, I'll save you. It's God talking about because of who he is, because I'm faithful, because of my promises, because I'm merciful and slow to anger, eager to forgive, I'm going to do this. And so we can often find the unconditional statements in prophecy because they're rooted in who God is and what he said, what his promises are. So that's a very quick overview of kind of who the prophets themselves are. But then we should also think about the prophetic books. Prophecy was primarily a spoken phenomenon. It was out in the marketplaces and the temple, different places of these things would be shouted out, proclaimed to the people. But then also sometimes those words are recorded into what we now have as the prophetic books. And so what we have as the prophetic books are kind of like um, anthologies, collections of these speeches. They're in a sense a bit like a a book of uh, political speeches you sometimes get, where these speeches from different times and places have been brought together into one book, into one collection. And that's really helpful to know because it has some implications for us in understanding the prophets and explaining some of what we might find slightly difficult or weird in the prophets. One thing that tells us that the ordering of the oracles is not systematic. So these different speeches have been put together and sometimes they're ordered chronologically, kind of in time order. Sometimes they're ordered by thematic links. Sometimes, frankly, there's not really much of an order at all. That's helpful to know. The reason is because they've been brought together from these separate contexts. It also explains there's a lot of repetition in the prophets. The reality is you read through some of the prophetic books, especially the big ones, you'll find a lot which feels kind of quite similar or the basic message is quite similar. And the reason is that those things weren't originally put in a book altogether. They were said in this town and this town and this context and this context, different people were hearing those messages that to us sound very similar. And that's why it can seem quite repetitive. This is also why there's not a lot of narrative in the prophets. The prophets are mostly the spoken speech, often in poetry. There's very little kind of narrative or story. We get little bits which kind of places those uh, stories into uh, context. 
Uh, and Jonah is a good exception, really, to this kind of general rule. But generally speaking, there's not a lot of narrative because what we're reading are the records and the summaries, probably, of spoken, uh, spoken speech, spoken uh, words. And the likelihood is these books came together in two stages. The prophets themselves uh, spoke these words in, in various contexts and they were then written down. Maybe the prophets wrote them down. Sometimes they were told to. Maybe people who heard them or some disciples or followers uh, wrote them down. Again, sometimes they were told to. And then probably at some point later, these different written oracles were brought together and made into these books, which could have been by the prophet themselves, could have been by other people, could have been over a period of time. We don't really necessarily know. And when we think of the books we've got in the Old Testament, traditionally, the prophets are divided into two groups, really just based on their size. We had the major prophets, that's Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, quite long books. And then we have 12 minor prophets who are listed in your notes there. And sometimes that's called the Book of the Twelve because they would have been on one scroll in the kind of original Hebrew uh, manuscripts. They were all kind of put together in that way. And this morning, we're not going to look at each individual book and give a kind of introductory overview, partly because that would fill all our time straight away, and partly because that's fairly easy to access in different places. So you might want to uh, look into some of them for yourselves, and things like the Bible Project introduction videos are good for that, or a study Bible or a Bible handbook would give you a good introduction or overview to a book. What I've also done is in the resources section of these notes I've sent you, there are two uh, charts which give you a bit of an idea of the, the chronology, the timing of where the prophets come and some of their context as well. And as we'll hear a little bit later, that's very helpful actually as we come to read them. So we're gonna have a few minutes in uh, breakout rooms now and you can do one of two things because you probably can't fit both in the time, but you can do whichever you prefer. You might also have a chat around how has what we've just talked about challenged your prior understanding of the prophets? Is this how you thought of them? Did you think of them more as people who just foretell the future? Has this reshaped how you tend to think about who the prophets were? The second thing you might want to do is on the notes, there are four passages in the Bible there, which are really helpful for helping us understand what prophecy is. And you might want to read those together and have a think. What do these teach us about Old Testament prophecy? and how it works and how can they actually help us then to read the prophets well. So we'll do, I think, kind of nine or 10 minutes in uh, breakout rooms, having a look at those and we'll come back for the next section. Welcome back everyone. We are going fast paced, apologies, but hopefully it's gonna allow us to get through a good chunk of helpful stuff. Let's talk now about the message of the prophets. Um, I think it's really helpful to get a bit of an understanding of the big picture overall message and ideas the prophets are trying to convey it's a bit like getting the the big picture that i guess the map which then helps us with some of the details because actually the overall message of the prophets is relatively simple and pretty much everything we'll read in these books will fit in somewhere in this and that's a really helpful guide for us you might think of it a bit like kind of a musical motif if you have a, a symphony you have repeating uh, musical motifs or if you're a fan of musical theatre like I am you have repeating musical motifs that might link to a certain character or a certain situation and you can get to recognize them you begin to hear well, that's that character's motif coming in again you can easily identify it it helps you keep up a little bit it's a bit like that with the kind of message of the prophets and I think a helpful way of summarizing the message of the prophets is in three parts it starts with a call to repentance the prophets are basically saying you've broken the covenant made with God at Sinai and so you better repent, you better change your actions. Then there's a warning of judgment, basically saying, well, if you don't repent, then actually the result will be judgment. God will have to act in judgment. 
And then there's a promise saying that even though judgment will come if you don't repent, there is hope because God is promising to uh, bring a glorious future restoration and to be faithful to his promises. And this is kind of in that you can hear this idea the prophets aren't saying much new, but they are reapplying the covenant of Moses to the people, to their new situation. And it's interesting to notice that that kind of summary of the prophetic message is very, very similar to what gets said when the covenant is made in uh, earlier in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is Moses with the second generation of Israelites after their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They are kind of on the, uh, the plains of Moab. They're just about to begin to go over to take the promised land. And Moses is reminding them of the uh, covenant they've made with God, the agreement. And this is what he says in uh, Deuteronomy 4 this year, starting from verse 25. When you father children and children's children and are grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to. And what Moses is saying there is basically this three part message of the prophets. There's a warning about sin and a call to repentance. He speaks especially of their idolatry, if they're worshipping other gods. And the implication is you need to not do that and you're going to need to change your actions. Then there's a warning of judgment coming through exile. He says if they do worship other gods, then actually judgment will come and that will be in the form of exile. He says the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. That's what exile is going off into the other peoples. But also there's a promise of hope in return from exile, of being rescued and brought back. You'll return to the Lord, your God, and obey his voice for the Lord, your God, is a merciful God. And so what the prophets are doing is just reapplying what's been said in the um, covenant with Moses to the people now. And let's just un unpick that a bit more, these kind of three sections. The message starts with this call to repentance. You've broken the covenant, and so now you better repent. The history of Israel, as you would have seen over this year, is really kind of a continual cycle of Israel sinning, them failing in their obligations to God, but then God being gracious. That even though they don't deserve it, he's good to them and he rescues them. And that kind of just goes on and on and on. By the time we get to the rising prophets, things have got so bad, basically. Israel are so stubborn in their heart, so continuously worshipping other gods, straying away from the covenant, that God decides it's time to act more uh, decisively. And he's declaring to them, you've broken this covenant. This is basically kind of your final chance to repent and to change. And so here there's a, a warning of the things that are coming, which as I said earlier, is meant to provoke repentance. It's warning speech meant to change someone's actions. And there's lots of evidence and lots of examples of what covenant breaking looks like in the prophets. But uh, the kind of three main things, which a lot of the, what we find would fall into, are firstly idolatry. We know the very heart of the covenant, the kind of first commandments in the Ten Commandments are about loving God alone, serving and worshipping him alone. But actually what the prophets are saying is so often you're going and you're worshipping other gods, you're trusting in other gods. Idolatry is a regular uh, sin that the prophets are highlighting and calling the people to repent of. 
The second one is social justice, which actually pairs nicely because we know the heart of the law, as Jesus says, is to love God and to love one's neighbour. And actually they were failing to love their neighbours because there was a, a huge uh, lack, really, of social justice. Often the, the poor, the disadvantaged were being overlooked or being trampled over in the language of the prophets, weren't being uh, kind of helped and looked after. And the ruling classes are becoming richer and just taking advantage of those situations which went completely against the heart of the covenant law, which had lots of provisions to protect the poor and disadvantaged. As the prophets point out, you are not following God's law on this. You're not loving your neighbour. Therefore, judgment is coming. And finally, there's a lot of religious ritualism, ritualism at this time, because in the covenant, God knew the people were still sinful. God knew they'd still make mistakes. And so he made ways for them to uh, atone for, to make up for that sin made ways that they could still be in relationship with God, even though they would sin. That's kind of what all the temples about and the sacrifices are about. But actually, by this period, so often people were doing some of that stuff, thinking it was like a kind of magic thing, which would mean they could do anything they want. They could continue to trample on the poor. They can continue to worship other gods. It'd be right if they made the occasional sacrifice. It was all external. Their hearts weren't really in it. And that's the thing the prophets really kind of challenged them about. So the prophets accuse the people, point out the things they're doing wrong. And in that, they also challenge them to repent, to turn their hearts away, to turn their actions away and to do things differently. It's warning speech, trying to get a change, get a, get a reaction out of them. The second part then is the warning of judgment. They're saying, well, if you don't repent, then judgment is going to come. And that's what the covenant had always stated. Time and time again in kind of Exodus through to Deuteronomy, there are warnings if you don't keep the law, Actually, you're not going to experience God's blessings. Actually, you're going to experience curses. There'll be uh, famine uh, and plague, and there'll be exile taking off into other nations. And when the prophets bring this warning of judgment, there are kind of two reasons for it. Sometimes it comes before the judgment has actually happened. And that's part of this thing of trying to encourage repentance, encourage people to realize what they're doing, to change their ways, because maybe actually they can avert the disaster. They can get away from it if they change their ways. Sometimes, actually, the talk of this punishment comes after it's happened. Sometimes it's not a warning it's going to happen. It's actually an explanation of why it's happened. And so actually often it's looking back on what has happened and explaining it, giving the, the kind of um, the context, the narrative behind it, helping people realise. And again, that's looking for repentance in a, in a heart change, not because the disaster can be averted, but because God wants people's hearts to return to him. And you'll notice when you read threats of judgment in the prophets, some of them are very uh, specific, very literal. Some of them are about um, different nations, Assyrians and Babylonians, the big nations of the day, invading them, taking them off into exile. Some are much more general. Some of it's just kind of the language of disaster, kind of almost symbolic stuff rather than literal stuff. They speak of death and destruction and just judgments in general. But all of them are kind of making this same point. So if there's not repentance, judgment is going to come and then the third bit is a promise of hope because even though the people are continually being unfaithful to the covenant and even if they don't repent judgment's going to come even if that happens the prophets say but god is gracious and merciful there's hope he will bring a glorious future restoration he's not going to give up on those promises he's made to abraham and to david he's going to keep his faithfulness we keep his promises in his faithfulness and that's rooted in who god is and so he brings promises that beyond all of this, there's going to be a future restoration, which actually won't just be a restoration to kind of how things were when the people were doing a bit better under some of the better kings, like the beginning of Solomon's reign or some of David's reign. 
actually it's a restoration of something even better, even bigger. There's promises of a new covenant, a totally new way of actually being relating, relative to God, of a new heart, the, the sinful heart, which when you get to the Old Testament, you kind of realize, man, the human heart is just not up to the task of keeping this covenant, of doing God's word, of doing God's, well, keeping God's word. There's a new heart promise, hearts of flesh rather than stone. God's law is going to be written on the hearts. God's spirit is going to be poured out. And actually the Gentiles, the nations, are going to be brought into God's people. It's within this part of the message we find what we call the messianic promises, promises about an anointed individual, a particular figure who's going to come as the, I guess, the agent of God's deliverance and God's rescue, who's going to bring this future hope to be a reality. And often you'll find the promises of hope are kind of um, less literal, because actually if they spoke in, in uh, literal terms of how God was going to do this thing, how God was going to bring salvation, what salvation would look like, it just kind of wouldn't have made sense to the people. So often the promises of future hope can be in very kind of concrete terms. Um, I was reading this morning, actually, the end of Amos and about kind of uh, fruitfulness in the fields and the vines dripping with grapes and stuff, which we might think, well, kind of, which we might think, has God done that? Is that what actually the fulfillment was? What the prophets are doing is using the language and the concepts people will understand in their context to speak of restoration, to speak of fruitfulness, to speak of the return of hope. And actually, when the reality comes, it's even better than that. But it's the same general concept of what that language was seeking to communicate. So when you read the prophets, you'll find that the vast majority of what you read will fit into one or more of these three parts of the message. And a really helpful tool for beginning to understand the prophets is just always to ask when you read a little section, which part of this prophetic message is that contributing to? That takes you a long way, actually, to beginning to uh, understand what it's saying, understand what's going on in there. <clears throat> One other thing to uh, talk about, though, which maybe doesn't always fit quite so clearly into that uh, kind of three part message is what we might call the oracles to the nations. Oracles, by the way, about later, just means these speeches, the kind of standalone speeches recorded from the prophets. The oracles of the nations are the times when God speaks through the prophets, but actually the words are spoken to other nations, to uh, Egypt or Edom or Amon or uh, Assyria, where God is speaking not directly to his people, as it were, to Israel and to Judah, but talking to the nations around them. And you get quite a lot of that. You get big chunks of that in the middle of some of the uh, major prophets. You get a little bit to it in the minor prophets. Um, <clears throat> Obadiah is a book which is all really directed to Edom, one of uh, Israel's neighbours to the to the east. And what these oracles are doing is they are addressing the nations, but probably they weren't spoken to those nations. Probably the people in these other places didn't ever actually hear them in a sense. But actually Israel are meant to overhear them. Israel are meant to hear what's said and Israel are meant to learn from what is said to the other nations. Actually, we can do the same today. We hear what is said to these nations that we learn through them. So these oracles show the Israelites then and show us now things like the fact that God is sovereign over all nations. In the ancient world, the deities were deemed to kind of be localized. The reason you find these surprising times when foreign rulers kind of honor the deities of different nations is because they thought all the deities were real. They just had their little patch and they thought Yahweh was the God of Israel and Judah. So they might actually sometimes be kind of nice to him or nice about him. Well, these messages say, actually, it's not that the gods of Egypt are over Egypt. Actually, Yahweh is over Egypt. God is over all the nations and the oracles to the nations kind of make that statement very strongly. 
it also they also help us see that every person has a sense of or has an obligation to God <clears throat> because God is the creator of all people we all owe, we all owe obedience to God and what's interesting to notice is the general kind of prophetic message is focused on the covenant it's covenant transgressions it's breaking the old testament law which uh, Israel and Judah are accused of when you go to the other nations actually they're treated very fairly in the sense that they're not accused of breaking the law which actually they hadn't been given they hadn't heard but they are accused of actually just not doing the things which we as humans should know because of what God's put in us and because of what we see in the world around us are the right things to do God judges them fairly based on what they can know but actually it is clear that because they are the creatures of God they do owe obligation or have obligations to him also shows us God is a God of justice. Often these messages are meant to reassure Israel that actually it's not just you who's been picked on by God. Actually, God is a God of justice and where there is sin, he will always bring judgment. And it's designed to remind Israel and challenge Israel they shouldn't trust in other nations. That's often what Israel did or wanted to do. When they were threatened by uh, problems, they went to other nations. Often if they were kind of being threatened by Syria and the north, they think, well, we'll go get some help from Egypt down south to come and support us and kind of strengthen our number, which in human terms might have seemed like a kind of a logical thing to do. You're a little nation against a big nation. See if you can get another big nation to help you. But actually God is using these oracles to show don't trust in these nations because even they are going to be um, judged as well. And one of the big messages God brings to the prophets is whatever threats the people might think they're facing, however dangerous they might think their situation is actually they need to and they can trust in God to save them and rescue them and see them through rather than trusting in kind of other nations. So those four things are why the oracles of the nations were there and how they were relevant to Israel and Judah in their day. I think they actually also apply to us in a sense. They're quite, um, they're points which still uh, uh, apply to us well and a helpful way of seeing in the same way that the Israelites overheard the oracles to other nations, we kind of overhear the oracles to Israel but they can still be relevant to us and we can still learn from them. Let's um, pause there. We've got a bit of space and time for Q&A or anything that has kind of come up so far. I think we'll try this first. Just if you've got a question, just feel free to unmute yourself and go for it. If we find there are loads and it's hard to coordinate, we'll do a different way, which is a bit more structure. But usually there isn't a huge rush to the front um, on a Zoom call, particularly to, to ask any questions. But do go for it if you want to unmute yourselves and ask one. Can I just ask, uh, was Job considered to be a minor prophet? I mean, I know you haven't got him in your notes as a prophet, but God did send him to Nineveh uh, to send a message to Nineveh. So would he have been considered as a minor prophet? Jonah, sorry. Job. Job. Uh, jo so jo yeah, Jonah, sorry. Yeah, 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 Jonah. Jonah. yeah, Jonah is a minor prophet. Is he not? He should be on the list of minor prophets. Apologies if he's not. And maybe, yeah. <coughs> he is. I mean, Jonah is a fascinating book. As I said, he's the, it's the one book which is primarily narrative rather than primarily spoken. And I think, I think Jonah's prophetic message, I think, is like one sentence or one verse or something. Um, but actually, <laughs> the whole story is meant to teach us. And, and what we see, you know, in some of the prophets, if there are prophetic acts they perform, there are sometimes bits of their life which are also helpful, um, illustrative things. And that's what happens in Jonah. But certainly, yeah, Jonah is considered himself to be a prophet and his book is within, within the Minor Prophets, even though it takes a somewhat different um, format to many of the others we find. Thank you. Thanks. 
What about Daniel? Is I I I understand the order of books. It's lumped together with it. It is lumped together with, between like the major prophets and the minor prophets. But is that is Daniel more to do with history and apocalypse? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So um, yeah, in our English Bibles, Daniel is placed, you say, between kind of the major and minor prophets. In the in the Hebrew Bible, Daniel is not part of the twelve those minor prophets. Daniel is part of the writing. So uh, that's almost the books that don't quite fit in elsewhere. Kind of Esther. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, um, different um, Ezra and Nehemiah, is that true? I'm not sure, apologies. Um, this kind of collection uh, of the writings and the Hebrew uh, kind of thing you have the Torah, the law, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and then the writings, and it's in there. Mm. Why Daniel ends up in the prophets in our Bibles, I don't know. I presume it's because of the time, as in when he was um, around, he's kind of in the same period as the prophets. Yeah. But generally yeah. speaking, he's a prophet, you're right, it's more some history in there. And apocalyptic in the sense of um through daniel god revealing so apocalypse means revealing uh kind of spiritual truths in the background okay no brilliant thank you so much Anne. thank you so much Anne. any other burning questions at this stage great if not we will go for our first coffee break i hope you've had a nice tea and coffee i hope you had something with your tea and coffee i mean i had some flapjacks just love flapjacks for my 10 o'clock cup of tea in the morning. So um, hope you had something nice as well. Um, I am going to hand back to Andrew because I can rabbit on about nothing all morning. So I'm going to mute myself and Andrew's going to talk about something useful. Well, I want to hear about your flapjack, I don't know. Um, but no, let's talk instead about reading the prophets. How do we actually go about uh, reading them and reading them well? So I'm going to give hopefully a bit of wisdom and a bit of guidance on that in this um session first thing i say is asking the right questions if you've uh, heard any of my sessions here or in different contexts you might have heard me talk about the importance of asking the right questions when it comes to reading the bible all reading is fueled by questions we might not realize it but when we read we are asking kind of implicit uh, under the surface questions when you read uh, a recipe book you're asking what do i do next to make this thing when you read the newspaper you're asking what's happened and what do people think about that so we need to find the right question to ask when we're reading the Bible. Good Bible reading comes from asking good questions, asking the right questions. And the key question we want to always ask when reading the Bible is what did the original author want to communicate to the original audience? So when these words were first said and then first recorded, what was it that, was, um, that the author or the one recording it was seeking to actually communicate? And when we take that approach, generally speaking, most texts have just one meaning. What was seeking to be communicated was just uh, one kind of thing. But there might well, back then and now, be different um, uh, applications that, different way that impacts us, different responses to be made. And that's just helpful, I think, to isolate that down. Often we, um, we kind of blur the line between what the text says and what impact it should make on us. And that gets rather confusing. Generally speaking, the text will mean one thing, but the impact it makes on us today might be different from the impact it made on them then. The impact might be different in different contexts at different times. So we want to find out what's the single meaning, the one thing this text means, and then how does that impact us, which might be in a variety of ways. And I think it's helpful to think of reading the prophets as a bit of a, a journey, a three-step journey. And taking these three steps and doing them separately helps us avoid some of the problems we can hit in reading the Bible. The first step is to ask, what does it actually say? And that's a point that kind of can feel so simple that it's easy to overlook, but actually it's really important. 
Here we're looking especially for the clues in the text. These, uh, these now they're written are very carefully crafted written pieces. We want to look for clues like emphasis, uh, like repetition, like imagery, different things which will give us a feel. And basically they're, they're clues that the author has included to their meaning. They're the things that help us to get to what's really important to this author, what's the thing they're actually trying to communicate. And in that stage, it's good to aim at the end of that to be able to summarize in your own words what it's actually saying. It doesn't yet mean, need to be what it really means, but what it is actually saying. Because then the next step is, what does it mean? Once we've got a feel for what it's saying and kind of all those clues we've picked up on, we're then in a position to think as an overall message, what is the uh, text or the, the message trying to say? What is it trying to communicate to the audience back then? Here it's good to ask, what was the purpose? Why was this being said? What did the uh, author want to achieve through saying this? And with the prophets, we can ask which of those three parts of the prophetic message did it fit? Which its meaning, which part of the prophetic message meaning did it fit into? And that gives us a helpful kind of a, I guess, a structure or a guideline in interpreting what this text means. Once we've got that, we're then in the position to ask, well, what impact should this make upon us? How should we respond to it? How should we be different? Or should we do something in light of the meaning of this text? That might be about how we think. It might be reshaping how we think about ourselves or God or the world. It might be something for us to do. It's going to affect the way we live. It could be something to do something or something for us not to do. But those three steps, I think, are a helpful way of breaking down what good Bible reading looks like. And then also, as for all Bible reading, but especially the prophets, you want to read in context. And the plural there is deliberate. We are often quite good at knowing we need to read the Bible in context. What we often overlook is there are multiple contexts that we need to actually consider. Firstly, there's the scriptural context. This is where does what we're reading fit into the kind of big flow, the big story of the Bible. And that's I know, some of what you've been looking at this year. You've been looking at what's the big story of the Bible from the start to the end of the Old Testament. So you'll have a bit of a gauge already for where the prophets come in the flow of that story. We said already the prophets can only be understood against the background of the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant made at Sinai in Exodus through to Deuteronomy. They're calling people back to that. They're reapplying that. They're reminding people of that. So that's a, a really important scriptural context point. And then also you'll know from looking through the Old Testament this year that we've reached a, a key point in the story, a point where God and Israel have made this agreement, but Israel have time and time again shown themselves unable to keep their side of the bargain. You get to this point of the Old Testament and we're beginning to realise humans really can't actually keep up to God's standards. They really can't keep the law of God. And so it's kind of this question of, well, what's going to happen? God's made these unconditional promises to make this thing work but the people can't keep their, their side of the bargain, how is it all going to end up? Where is it actually going to go? They're the questions we're meant to have by the time we get to the prophets. And that's the scriptural context, which is helpful to, to understand. The prophets are answering those kind of questions. They've also got the historical context. What was going on in the world around them at the time? The prophets very often were speaking very directly into their present current historical situation often into something happening kind of in a sense right at that moment in that place. Maybe there was a famine going on. Maybe there was a threat of a foreign invasion. Maybe they had been invaded and the prophet was explaining why that was happening. And so the prophet could speak with the assumption that everyone knew that because it was the news of the day. It was the really big obvious thing happening for them. Of course, we come to it and that's not always very obvious to us. We don't know what's happening at the actual time. And so we want to ask both of the book as a whole 
but also each little individual section in it, what was the historical context? What's the background? What's going on in the world at this point? And that can be hard. And this is one of the reasons we find the prophets hard. They're assuming that we know what's going on. Well, actually, they don't. It's a bit like if someone read something from today in hundreds, thousands of years time, if they didn't know the pandemic was going on, they'd be trying to kind of suss out from what's being said. Why was life so different? Why were the news people saying all these things, whatever it might be? Actually, we've got to uh, work out the, the context, which was obvious to us right now because we're living in it, but actually wouldn't be obvious to people reading about it later. And this is where various resources can help us. And the prophets are a part of the Bible where it is worth just having one or two things to hand to help us when actually things are a bit confusing. So things like study Bibles and Bible dictionaries will give that little bit of introduction to the book, what was going on in the world or the part of the world where these messages were brought at the time they were brought. A Bible handbook will give you a more of a kind of a section by section summary of, of the text or a commentary will provide more detail verse by verse or section by section and a lot more detail on the background if you want to really get to grips of what was going on and how does that make an impact so scriptural context historical context but also what we might call literary or immediate context which is basically what else is around the actual words how are the words working together what comes before what comes after is important because we all tend to think that dictionaries define the meaning of words but that's not actually true usage defines the meaning of words Words find their meaning in sentences. Sentences find their meanings in paragraph or in stanzas of its poetry. And paragraphs, and sometimes stanzas, find their meaning in broader kind of uh, chapters or books. We want to think how do all these words actually kind of work together. And when it comes to the prophets, what we're thinking of there particularly is oracles. These things I've mentioned a little bit, we've not talked too much about, but it's helpful to think about oracles. But the next thing is when reading the prophets, it's good to read and actually to think in oracles. Oracles, as I mentioned, are these standalone units. They're kind of, you know, the speech that was delivered and then recorded down or summarized. And you kind of see them in our text. Our texts are broken up into oracles, into little um, speeches, little sections of text. And so in this way, our prophets, uh, the books of prophets now are like anthologies of poems or of political speeches, kind of all recorded, collected together. And often a single oracle will be communicating a key point. And so it's helpful for us to think in that slightly bigger picture, what's this entire passage of however many verses it might be trying to communicate. And so it's helpful to break down where does the oracle kind of start and stop. Often you can do that quite easily. Often a kind of a bit of common sense will tell you what the kind of start and stop point of the oracle. Our English Bibles help us. They put gaps between them. We've got to remember that's just the editor's own decisions. We might disagree actually what they think, but that can be a helpful starting point. Or again, things like a commentary, like a handbook will help us with that. But there are some clues. If there's a changing speaking voice, that might be a changing oracle. If at one point it's God speaking, but then actually the next point it's the prophet speaking, that might be because this is a different message given at a different time. Sometimes the prophetic formulas, the messenger formula we talk about, thus says the Lord, or this is what God says, they might come at the start or the end of an oracle. That might be indication this is a, a separate unit. Sometimes the context being addressed, what the prophet is speaking into changes. So if one minute they're talking into a context of um, a, a great famine that's hit the land, but the next minute they're talking to a context of a threat of invasion by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, that might have been a change. And sometimes the form of the text changes. If you go from poetry to narrative, that might be an indication that we're in a different oracle. 
And as I say, it's helpful to think rather than in verses, which is what we maybe instinctively do because of the numbers and the kind of breaking down of our Bibles, it's helpful to think in these bigger chunks of oracles. What is this oracle trying to say? Why was this message given? Why was this speech delivered? And that can help us. And we can also recognize that there are different types of oracles or speeches. There actually are kind of almost um, set formats for some of them. There were patterns that the prophets followed in using them. And it's really helpful just to have a, a basic understanding of different types of oracle, because the type of oracle immediately tells you a lot about its purpose and even actually about its relevance to us today. So it's a really helpful little tool for making it much easier to begin to understand the prophets. So let me just zip you through just a few examples. I might not go through all of the ones in the notes, but you can kind of go back to them in your own time. Judgment oracles are very common, perhaps the most common form of oracle where God announces judgment on the people. As we've said, these messages are all about the people are failing to keep the covenant that God had made with them, and therefore judgment is going to come. As we often get this announcement of God's judgment, you get a declaration that they're guilty, and sometimes an explanation of what the guilt is, what it is they've done, and then a threat of punishment. And the purpose of that is to convict sin. It's to highlight to people you've done wrong and to make them realise that. And also to motivate repentance is part of this warning speech we've turned up, we've talked about. It's meant to turn people away from what they're doing. If the judgments already come, it's an explanation of why that's happened. It's not that some other God has got involved and another nation's God has actually been more strong than, uh, than Yahweh, than the God of Israel and Judah. Actually, it's because the people turned away that God had to bring in the curses of the covenant. And the relevance of that to us is actually these oracles reveal to us the severity of sin, that sin is so serious that judgment has to come for the need for God to judge because God is just and holy because he's the creator, the one to whom obedience is due. It is right and fitting and necessary that God judges when there is sin and rebellion against him. But therefore also these oracles remind us of the wonder of forgiveness. Every time you read about the judgment coming in the prophets, we should be reminded of the wonder of forgiveness. Actually, that judgment for us in Christ hasn't fallen on us and won't fall on us. Actually, it's already fallen on Christ so that we are forgiven. When we see the severity of sin, the wonder of the gospel and the forgiveness that we've received becomes even greater. Salvation oracles then are kind of the flip side, the opposite, I guess, of that. In these oracles, God promises salvation. That can be a very near future physical thing. It can be deliverance from a, another nation, from an enemy. It can be a, a far off, a distance, we call eschatological, about the end times thing, kind of about new creation and different things. The purpose of a salvation oracle is to evoke a response of trust in God. Actually, they don't want to trust in foreign nations. They don't want to trust in their own wisdom or their own ways. They need to trust in God. He's the one who can save them and can actually uh, rescue them. They're meant to bring comfort and peace when, the, when a judgment has come, when they're experiencing the effects of that, but actually the promise of hope to come is meant to bring reassurance, comfort and peace. And it's meant to fuel worship. And often you'll find salvation oracles kind of flowing into oracles, which are more expressing of praise and of worship. The relevance to us is salvation oracles reveal God's heart. It's an incredible thing that even though the people were deserving of judgment, even though they kept on rebelling against God and judgment was the right and just thing for God to do, actually, even that's the case, he promises salvation. He promises rescue and restoration. It reveals the heart of God as one who's gracious and merciful, who's slow to anger, who's eager, who wants to forgive. 
And some of these actually talk about the salvation that we enjoy. Some of them, uh, the longer term ones, are talking of what we enjoy now and what we are going to enjoy in the future in the consummated kingdom in the new creation. Uh, a disputation or a recall is a debate between God or the prophet on one side and an opposing viewpoint. We are listening into a, a debate, a conversation going on. Often it's about correcting a wrong view. So one side will bring the wrong view and then God or the prophet will come and correct uh, that view. The purpose here is to highlight, to challenge wrong thinking and to teach truth. It's to undermine the wrong ideas. Maybe the people think that they're safe if they trust in Egypt to help them. Or maybe they think they can keep on uh, trampling on the poor so long as they make the occasional sacrifice. Actually, disputation or oracle will come in and undermine the idea and challenge the idea. To us, they're relevant because they teach us about God, about who he is, how he works. They teach us the truth against the lie and they help shape our thinking to kind of fall into line with God. There's a couple more there that I'll let you kind of read in your own time, but have you been to see if we can isolate what type of oracle this is? Actually, it helps us to work out, well, what might the author be trying to do through that, the prophet be trying to do through that, and also how might it be relevant to us? And the last thing it's helpful to think about reading um, the prophets is about reading Hebrew poetry. We've already said an awful lot of the prophets is written not as narrative, but as poetry. And Hebrew poetry is different from English poetry. And so it's helpful to think about how does it work how can we recognize some key elements and learn to read it well? A bit like we, we tend to think, well, it's not really true. We tend to think in English that poetry is kind of defined by, uh, by rhyming. But in reality, most or many English poems don't rhyme. And actually, that's not true in Hebrew. So it's asking, well, what are the things that are very characteristic and helpful to recognize? And really, in a sense, the, the key characteristic, the equivalent of rhyming, as we think of in English poetry, in Hebrew poetry, is this thing that we call parallelism. Parallelism is about having parallel lines, so lines that kind of go alongside each other, usually two or three, sometimes as many as four, that kind of work together. They work together as a group. There are a deliberate um, matching together, a pairing together. And when you have these two or three or four lines, there are different relationships between them, different ways they work together. And learning to recognize those is a really helpful way of learning to try and trace the, the meaning of this kind of little section and what the prophet is seeking to communicate. So there's some fancy names, but the ideas aren't too complex. We have synonymous parallelism, where you have two or more lines and the additional lines are just repeating the same thing again. And together, they're all making one point. So an example would be Hosea 5.8, which says, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. This is about a kind of a warning, a coming judgment. This is a trumpet, uh, a horn uh, blown in the context of war. And we could read this and think, well, these are two separate things. When we get to uh, Gibeah, we need a horn. When we get to Rama, we need a trumpet. But that's not what the prophet is trying to say. They're just using, saying the same thing, but using a little bit of variation to bring a bit of color to it, as it were. Actually, it's not that there's specific instructions of what instruments you use in different places. Actually, it's just repeating the same point rather than literally repeating the same words, it has a bit of colour by saying it in two different ways. And so we're meant to take those two things together and understand it as a sound, the announcement of a coming war, of coming judgment and battle. The next one is called antithetical parallelism. Again, don't be put off by the kind of fancy names. This is where the additional lines contrast. Synonymous, they're saying the same thing. Antithetical, they're saying a different thing. They're actually saying the opposite often in a contrasting way. 
often this is like two sides of the coin. It's saying the same thing, but it's doing it by saying it's opposite. So a famous example of this one from Isaiah 118, though your sins are like scarlet, one side of the coin, they shall be white as snow, the other side of the coin. Though, your, though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. These two pairings have a stark contrast. Actually, it's the stark contrast which is meant to communicate the, the message of that little um, section or those verses, that this radical, amazing, all-encompassing forgiveness is going to be enacted. And then finally, the last thing is what we might call climactic or synthetic parallelism, where you have the multiple lines and the additional lines are a development from. So you have line A and then line B or C are developing, flowing from. Maybe it's giving a reason or an explanation. Uh, it's further kind of expanding the idea. So another Isaiah example, Isaiah 1-2, says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. First line has the command, hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth. Second line has the explanation of why you should listen to the command, for the Lord has spoken. It offers an explanation. It's basically listen up. Why should listen up? Well, you need to listen up because God has spoken. And while this is so helpful, is we should think of these parallel lines as a whole. In the same way it's helpful to think of oracles as a whole, actually think of these little units as a whole. What together are they trying to communicate? And where we go wrong in reading the prophets is if actually we try to drill too much down into details of these parallel lines, and that often sends us off in the kind of wrong directions into things the prophet isn't trying to say. What do these little groups of lines together actually seek to communicate? And then you can go one step further. This is the kind of stuff you do if you're doing a, an in-depth study on a passage, maybe to teach it or something. You look at the relationship between the lines, and then what's the relationship between the sets of lines? Are they saying the same thing? Are they saying a contrasting thing? And actually, when I do this, I kind of annotate, I've got colour pencils and different things. And it's amazing how you begin to really get a feel for a passage when you think about the relationships between all these different parts. Finally, then, I'll read the prophets just a moment on language and imagery. Much like in English poetry, actually, imagery is very common in Hebrew poetry to make it vivid and memorable. Or for these being spoken words uh, initially, I wanted to be memorable to the people hearing them. But we need to learn to understand it well. Hebrew poetry includes both similes, and A is like this, uh, God is like a rock, and also metaphors, A is, God is a rock. And we want to learn to read them carefully to understand what they're actually trying to communicate through that imagery. You've got two things in a simile or a metaphor. You've got the thing being described and the thing to which it is likened or the thing with which it's um, associated. So God is our rock, God is the thing being described and the rock is the thing with which it's kind of being associated. And it's important to separate those out. I think it's important to think what is it about the thing with which um, something's being associated with that the prophet wants to highlight and make a point about. Because being so far removed in time and context from the prophets, things might evoke different ideas to us than they do to other people. So we need to think actually what do they evoke? And so the example I tend to think of is if we might think of a lion, you might say that God is a, a roaring lion. And we might think, wow, lions is like you're going on a safari. It's exciting. It's seeing these amazing, big, strong, beautiful creatures. How great, how exciting. Actually, in the ancient world, lions were in Israel at that time, and you would come across them on a mountain path and they might eat you. Lions were terrifying. They weren't this exciting, what a majestic creature. They were, this is terrifying and dangerous. Actually, the, the ideas associated with the lion are completely different. And so we want to think, 
what is it about the thing that the item is being linked to that the author wants to kind of evoke and bring to us? Sometimes that'll be really obvious, you know, when God is our rock, we know they're not saying he's gray. They know we're not saying he's kind of hard and hurts if he hits you. They're saying actually he's a, a solid, firm foundation. Some of them are more difficult. And so some of them are helpful again to refer to some sort of reference work to find what might be helpful in that. I'm gonna give you some timing um, breakout rooms now. You can choose one of two activities. You might want to think about parallelism, how these lines relate to each other and how that might help us to understand the meaning. So there's some examples in your notes that you can look at there. Or you might want to do um, the other activity, which is looking at imagery. And so it's separating this thing of what's being described, what's it being linked to, and then what is it about the thing it's being linked to that the prophet is trying to bring out? And again, it's thinking, how does the imagery communicate something powerfully to us and help us understand the meaning of these uh, sets of lines, of these parallelisms? So, and it's taking our groups for, I don't know, 10 or just a little bit over 10 minutes to have a look at some of those. Great. Um, let's do a last session on the prophets and us. The final kind of uh, stage in reading the Bible well is actually asking, well, what impact does it have on us? We don't just want to understand it as it was kind of back then and what we're saying back then. We want to think, how should it impact us and what response should we make? And I kind of quite deliberately choose that language of impact and response. I find that a helpful way of talking about this, maybe slightly more helpful than the language application. I think we often talk about application and it's good stuff, but we can have quite narrow understandings of what application is. We tend to think, what do I need to go and do or not do in the back of this? But actually sometimes the way uh, the Bible has an impact on us is much broader than that. So I find this helpful to think about impact in the sense of how a text might have an impact on us that might challenge us to change our thinking particularly. Um, so it might be our thinking about God, who he is, what he's like, about ourselves actually, uh, about the gospel, about how the world works, how it's best to live, all these kind of things that can impact us because our thinking really does have a, a huge impact on our living and on our feelings. So that's a, a very relevant way the Bible helps us and changes us today. And then response, I think, is kind of how we live in light of the impact. Response is more about, are there things we need to more <clears throat> kind of proactively do? Sometimes it is go and do something. Sometimes it's go and don't do something. Sometimes actually the response is about um, cultivating a heart of worship or growing in faith. Sometimes it actually is the encouragement to keep going when things are really tough. And so I think it's helpful to think, how does this text impact me? What impact can it make? And how can I then respond to that? And I really believe when we think in that kind of way, there is lots of huge relevance to us in the prophets. So actually, there's lots that we can learn. They can be really edifying. It can build us up and, and do us good in that way. How then do we go about finding what's helpful in the, how best uh, prophets can impact us and how we can make a good response? I think first, we consider the original impact and response. We consider how actually would it have impacted those who first heard it? How did the uh, prophet want the people to respond? What impact did it have? What response they seeking to evoke? Sometimes that's really explicitly stated. Sometimes there's kind of almost instructions that the prophet declares to the people. Sometimes it's a bit more implied and we have to discern it, work it out from what is there. And then we've got the original impact and response. We then want to ask the questions, well, kind of how does that transfer to us? Does it come across wholesale? Does it still work for us as it is? Or actually, does our different context, both in the Bible's big story or different contexts in history, affect that and change the way that it's going to have an impact on us and the way that we should um, respond to it? So 
So things that are unchanged will be things that don't change, things like who God is. Actually, truths about God, because God doesn't change, are just as relevant to us, can impact us in the same way, can shape our thinking, which will then impact our living in the same way. I think a lot of the truth is about humanity and actually what is true of us as, as humans and what God wants for us are, are kind of things that stay the same. And so there are times when actually the prophets are, in a sense, directly, immediately, in an unmediated way relevant to us. Then there are times when actually we realise what the original impact and response was and it needs to change for us because of our historical situation. Often that's the case where there are warnings of uh, very specific historical things or very specific historical situations which we're just currently not in. But what we can do is look for an underlying principle which we can apply. So uh, when the prophets are calling people to trust in God when they're experiencing a threat rather than trusting another nation, that uh, kind of direct thing is very low risk for us. It's pretty low risk for us that we as individuals are going to trust another nation to save us in a difficult situation. But the principle of we look to things other than God for our security, we look to things other than God to save us and rescue us and protect us is very relevant, actually. And so the principle applies to us, even if the uh, kind of explicit outworking of it in that time or context doesn't. Likewise, um, idolatry, a big part of the prophets is actually accusations of idolatry, which often in this context did mean having models of gods, did mean worshipping the gods by their names of other nations. For us, that might not be as likely a thing, but it's actually very often the case that we let other things take a, a place of priority in our heart. We seek our meaning and our worth and our value from other things. Things become effective God substitutes for us, idols. And so the principle actually of looking at our hearts, being faithful to God alone, worshiping him as God alone is very, very relevant to us. That's changes because of the historical kind of context Sometimes there are changes because of the Bible's big story. We, of course, are in a very different part of the Bible's big story to the prophets. The prophets are under the old covenant. They're, um, we're very much linked to, as we said, this covenant under Moses. We now are under the new covenant. We are those who are in Christ. Our situation actually is really quite radically different. So we need to interpret and apply what the prophets say through the lens of Christ and through the reality of the ministry and the work of Christ. So, for example, the judgment oracles. Judgment oracles are meant to be a warning of coming judgment. But actually, the glorious truth of the gospel, Romans 8, 1 says, there's no condemnation for us that we're in Christ Jesus. There is no judgment coming for us. That judgment has been placed on Jesus and will not fall on us. There's a, there's a difference there. But actually, there's still things this can teach us. It does teach us about the severity of sin, which reminds us of the wonder of the gospel, the wonder of forgiveness. But also, the judgment oracles show us how sin kind of hurts God how actually how serious it is how it pains God which increases our desire to want to live holy lives as living sacrifices as those wanting to honor and love God with the way we live our lives and it reminds us of the importance of living lives of repentance when there's a the prophets call people to repentance we should receive that challenge too our lives are still meant to be characterized by repentance so often just thinking well what did the prophet want the people to uh, receive from this what was the impact and response we then think about well, how does that impact or uh, how does that uh, come across to us? I think about historical situation, Bible context can help us to apply that well. We can then always with the prophets ask, what can we learn about God? The prophets are one of the places we most get to know who God is actually. They most reveal God because they're the place where he is speaking directly to the people. We're hearing his words and in his speaking and in the actions kind of linked to that speaking, 
we're seeing what he's really like. We're seeing his heart. We're seeing it's kind of who he really is. And so a question you can always ask, actually pretty much all of the Bible, but especially of the prophets, is what does this reveal about God's heart and about his character? And then we should ask, well, how does that truth kind of shape the way that we live? How does that have a, a positive impact on us today? In the prophets, sometimes that's very explicit statements. There are great declarations of who God is. Sometimes, actually, it's in what God says and in what God does that reveals it. So it's not stated who he is and what he's like, but we're actually getting a, a feel for it. We're getting an insight into who he is and what he's like from the words and from the actions. And then also, I think we can ask of the prophets, how does this show us the gospel? How does this speak to us about the good news of the salvation that God has worked for us in sending his son? And there are various ways in which it does that. Sometimes it does that in very um, specific promises. There are those salvation oracles we talked about, promises of rescue, of deliverance, of salvation. And some of those promises are speaking directly, explicitly of the salvation that we now enjoy in Christ. They're speaking of what God was going to decisively do to bring salvation. There is wonderful uh, times in the prophets when God is speaking of what we are going to or we are now experiencing. Sometimes the prophets reveal the shape of the gospel. I think this is helpful to think about the, the kind of historical stuff that goes on. The, in a sense, very physical judgments of sometimes it is famine, sometimes it is uh, invasion by foreign nations, exile, and the physical salvation of an end of a famine or being brought back to the land, whatever it might be, are kind of really just a picture of the greater judgment and the greater salvation in Christ, actually. The invasion of the Israelites, the idea of exile, is just actually a picture of our bigger exile from God, our spiritual exile from God. And actually, in terms of eternal judgment, what can be an eternal exile from God? And actually, you know, coming back to the land, coming into the place of blessing with God, all of that actually is a picture of the greater reality of coming back into being the people of God and the rest of God, ultimately the new creation of God. So the shape of the prophets can speak to us about the shape of the gospel. I think the prophets also really reveal the need for the gospel because so much of the prophets is these oracles of judgment particularly. Actually, it just reminds us and reveals to us the utter sinfulness of the human heart, the inability of humans to live God's way. We cannot be righteous on our own. And when you get to this stage in the Old Testament, that's what you're meant to get. You're meant to get to the Old Testament and think there's a massive, whacking great problem because humans are incapable of faithfully loving, uh, following God and being obedient to him. And yet the problem is God's made these promises. How is he going to fulfill them? And Jesus becomes the answer to that. So just the need for the gospel. And I find some people say the prophets quite depressing. I find them hugely encouraging. I find every time I read the prophets, I am so increasingly grateful for the gospel because it reminds me of my need actually for the gospel, which reminds me of the fact that Jesus has come for me. God has saved me and rescued me. I think they rule the nature of the gospel, the fact that the gospel is rooted not in human worth, not in human actions. The gospel is rooted in God, in his promises. It's a, a, a natural outworking of who he is and is based on his faithfulness to his goodness and his promises, not anything about us. And finally, the, the, um, the prophets show us the gospel because they show us the right response to the gospel. I've said a few times, one of the big messages of the prophets is about trusting in God alone for salvation and rescue, not looking to other nations or other so-called gods or different things to try and rescue us. And the same course is true of us. The only way to salvation is trusting actually in God and his promises in what he provides. 
And actually the prophets talk about the fact that actually that faith in God should be visible in the lives that people are then living. And that of course also is true for us. Our salvation is meant to be evidenced in the fruit that is born in us and the way we live our lives. And that same thing can be seen. The outworkings might be different, although actually often they'll be quite similar, but the same concept is there. So I really think there's loads in the prophets that is hugely relevant to us today. They're not parts of the Bible we should just read to know some trivia or kind of read because we feel we ought to read the whole Bible. Actually, there's so much which will be beneficial to us, make a good impact, stuff we can respond to. And they are going to be so kind of edifying. They build us up. They do us so much good. Hopefully those little tips there give a bit of a head start actually on how to get the most out of the prophets and how to um, yeah get the application of the, uh, the impact on us. We'll open up again to a few questions. We've got a little bit of time before we take another coffee break and move on to our second topic for the day. But anything, anyone wants to pick up from anything we said the prophets or anything I've not touched on that I might be able to briefly say something on? I always think this always means I've been either very comprehensive or very confusing. Uh, hopefully the former, not the, <laughs> not the latter. Hands up if you're happy. Just to mention, I thought, as we did in the last session, there are two videos I made for a different context, which take a lot of the tools we've talked about and apply them to two oracles, two passages in the prophets, as kind of worked examples. So I've stuck links to the videos um, in the chat there, um, which you're kind of free to look at your own time. Hopefully, yeah, I'll show, show how some of these tools and the things we've talked about can be helpful as we read the prophets.